Hey, everybody, it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly here with some encouraging words for you performers out there who live in perpetual fear of failing, of going out on stage and bombing. Don't feel so bad because you're in really good company. I'm a scared kind of guy. I mean, I would not be a performer if I didn't have to be. Yeah, it happens to the best of them, like him, the virtuoso banjo player Bela Fleck. Even he gets the jitters on opening night. You're always one note away from a disaster. And the potential for disaster is compounded when there are a lot of notes and a lot of instruments and musicians all depending on you. Such was the case when Bela sat down a couple of years ago to write his first big orchestral work, a banjo concerto called The Impostor. Sure, as a player, he had tackled everything from bluegrass to Bach with triumphant results, but he really felt out of his depth this time around. And it was a white-knuckled ride. All of it, as it turns out, captured in a documentary film that Bela put together called How to Write a Banjo Concerto. Well, The Imposter uh, premiered in 2011, and the scary part is long over, but I forced Bela Fleck to relive the experience as he was getting ready to perform the concerto once again, this time in our area with the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music. Actually, Bela and I talked about a number of things, not just the concerto, but also his relationship with his friend and banjo inspiration Earl Scruggs and his more complicated relationship with the composer that he was named after, Bela Bartok. That and more from Bela Fleck. And then in the second half of the show, uh, we'll hear from a really adventurous and inventive young composer named Dylan Mattingly. He had a new work uh, premiere at the Cabrillo Festival this past week, also on the opening night program with the Banjo Concerto. And we're going to start off with a little bit of the Banjo Concerto uh, from the first movement, and then my interview with Bela Fleck. You know, I just watched uh, the movie, How to Write a Banjo Concerto. Oh, cool. And I have to say, Bela, that it was really fun watching you struggle. Thank you. (laughs) I'm glad you enjoyed that. (laughs) Why did you choose to film yourself during that process? Well, partly it was because I had already done this film in Africa, and I liked the whole process of making films and the experience of it. And then I thought to myself, you know, this is a huge event in my life, and it would be pretty simple to, to, to chronicle some of it and and just ha- just have it and see what it turns into. So I just started, you know, started out with a little um, home video camera that I just would turn on when I was working, o- almost just to capture stuff, um, maybe stuff that I wouldn't remember as I was writing. Like if I if I couldn't remember what I had just sung out loud or or played on my banjo, I could go back to the film and hear it. And 
But part of it, in my mind, I was thinking, boy, it would be a lot easier to make a film of something like this, where it's mostly just me doing my thing, and then I eventually with the orchestra, then going all the way to Africa and going to, to, to five countries and traveling around and camping out and all that kind of stuff. So it was a combination of things. But also, I think that the whole world of the orchestra and classical music is um, an alien one to a lot of the people that listen to some of the music that I'm involved in. And I thought it might be really neat to show it. You know, that, that idea that it would be alien, uh, is, is that in some sense the story that the concerto itself tells as well? I mean, I'm, I've heard it. I don't know if it was driven by a narrative, but the title is really suggestive. The imposter, yeah. and then infiltration is the first movement, integration is the second movement, and then the third is the truth revealed. That's right, and, and it's something that I realized after I wrote the piece when Future Man from the Flectones asked me, is there a storyline here? And I said, well, you know, now that you mention it, this is what I kind of think is going on in the piece for me. And it was that, if you imagine like a masquerade party where some scruff comes into <laughs> high society, um, but the banjo is the scruff, or I'm the scruff, depending on, you know, interpretation. And, uh, and nobody knows that, that he doesn't belong there. And then uh, in movement two, perhaps um, everything seems to be working out very well. The, the ruse is working, and the scruff is fitting into the situation, you know, which happens to be the symphony. But in movement three, somehow he's unmasked. And in this case, it's because I start playing Earl Scruggs' music. Up, up until then, I'm kind of masking, masquerading as no particular instrument. I'm just playing musical language as it suits me. But in movement three, I started to play some bluegrass. And, um, and that was when the truth is revealed, and then possibly... Um, the scruff is run out of town or escapes with the king's china or <laughs> something of that sort. But I think uh, it also felt to me that when I was writing the piece, um, I was kind of I started out trying to write a concerto, like a more of a classical concerto, and I even alluded to Bach and things like that in the piece and Mozart and things that I loved. But as I was writing the second movement, I stopped doing that and just started writing stuff that's sort of hard to. Uh, characterize as any particular thing, and in, in a way, to me, that's some of the most successful music in the piece. And in the third movement, as I was starting to move towards the end, I was starting to think, what's the strongest card I can play at this point? And I realized I really hadn't used the banjo uh, as a bluegrass instrument, and I, and I felt that I really didn't want it to be a bluegrass concerto, but having some moments where that happened would be would be cool. And I, so I started to do that, and then I realized that was sort of you start to realize, oh yeah, that's right, it's a banjo. <laughs> the third movement, that's when that will come to people's minds. Oh, right. By the way, I would say that in terms of the finale of the story, um, the scruff runs off with the king's daughter. Ah, very nice. Very nice. <laughs> <Wins> her heart. <laughs> but, you know, when I was listening to it, I, I was unsure whether you were telling that story, and yet I was feeling it. And it seemed to me that I was hearing um, voices uh, and that uh, the banjo was sort of faking its accent initially. Mm. You know, not faking mm. it, I mean, but doing a great job of speaking in high-toned Baroque accents sometimes, or sometimes getting jazzy, but trying on, you know, as it mingled in this uh, event, right, with all these other people.
Yeah, I mean, I can almost hear myself trying to figure out how to write the thing. <laughs> and, and when I first uh, started to realize that, I thought, oh, I should go back and rewrite the first movement now that the second movement started to happen in such an organic way. But then I realized that it kind of made the piece interesting to hear the piece evolve as, as it was being written, um, as I got more and more comfortable with the materials and, and the whole process of trying to write for those instruments. So I decided that I liked it, which you know, obviously made my job easier. But it did not, uh, for, judging from what I saw in the documentary, How to Write a Banjo Concerto, uh, it did not ease your opening night dread <laughs> all that I'm much. I'm a scared kind of guy. I mean, I would not be a performer if I didn't have to be. I, I get more and more comfortable with performing when I get to do it uh, consecutively. And once I'm on tour for a few days, I'm really confident and comfortable. It's just like home. But I'm always scared when I'm doing something new. And so playing with an orchestra like this, although I had done it with Edgar and um, Edgar Meyer, and I'd also done it with Edgar and Zakir Hussein, you're up there with your pals, and you're all, you know, you all got each other's back. But, but when it's just me up there with the orchestra, it's a whole different world. And so I was um, reasonably petrified, and, um, you know, I really don't know quite how I got through it. Um, but it did work out pretty darn well for the first night. You know, I I know you're you're not faking that because uh, in the scenes in the movie on opening night, you have this dazed look while people are talking to you uh, and you're nodding your head. I can tell your mind is elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really felt for you. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I put myself in that position, so you know, this is what I do, and and um, you know, just sometimes you yeah, so you have to deal with your fear. That's part of being a performer too. Um, so, uh, and, and I think it's kind of cool to show that. You know, I like to see that with, with other performers that I'm interested in, so I figure maybe somebody would be interested in it, in it with, with me. But it tells a story that's kind of universal, that's, that's much better than, oh, like a video telling how great somebody is, or, you know, we call it like a puff piece or something, all about how, how easy it was and how you strode through this thing with no problems and just aced it. That's boring. And and doesn't tell you very much about who the person is, and um, so now I felt pretty comfortable about laying it all out there. What, what's funny is that you are a musician of such stature that I'm sure there are people who are scared in your presence. You know, um, is is that true up and down the line? Is everybody scared of somebody else or some? Yeah, everybody's <laughs> scared of somebody. Absolutely right. And you know, I know I'm, I I shake hands with people and then their hands are, sh- are shaking, and I'm like, dude. It's only me, but when, I, when I'm meeting, uh, you know, when I was meeting Chick Corea early on, or Tony Rice, or, you know, J.D. Crow, this banjo player, Earl Scruggs, I mean, I was petrified, and um, I, I also realized while making the film that being petrified is kind of boring, too, so I, let's, we, can, we can move on from that, but, but at a certain point, you know, how uptight you are really becomes extremely boring, so... <laughs> Um, well, again, it's really refreshing when someone, uh, you know, when ordinary folks see someone who's hailed as a virtuoso and, you know, sort of at the very top uh, on a certain instrument is still as nervous as, as a kid under some circumstances. So You're always one note away from a disaster. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but ironically, when I listen to other people and they come off stage and say, gosh, I, well, I wanted to play so much better, and I always say to them, perfection is overrated. You know, uh, it's much more fun to watch somebody fighting for it than it is to watch somebody just nail it with without a, a single hair must up. You know, but um, it doesn't always feel as good. And that's sort of the key as a musician is you might be going through all kinds of emotions that aren't comfortable 
while doing a performance that's a heck of a lot of fun to watch, <laughs> you're still having that uncomfortable experience. And, and that's part of the imposter thing, too. You're up there. You, you try not to show it when you're having any of those kinds of experiences. And, and, again, it's kind of boring, too, and you don't want the whole audience to be uptight with you. You want them to have a good time. They're not there to get uptight. But um, you, know, you have to do whatever it takes to put on uh, a good face and just go for it. And eventually you, you start to have a lot of fun. Mm. Um, how old were you when, you when you actually met Earl Scruggs? Oh, that was, uh, that was in the 80s. So uh, I think I was uh, either in my mid, mid to late 20s or early 30s. And that was through John Hartford, who was uh, just, a, just a wonderful character. Uh, he wrote the song Gentle on My Mind. Oh, yeah. Banjo player, little player. Yeah. Um, steamboat captain. And uh, when I joined Newgrass Revival uh, in, in 81, um, he was a very good friend of those guys, and I was really excited about getting to know him. And he's the one who took me over to meet Earl the first time, and that was really exciting. It must have been. Well, just for folks who haven't seen the documentary about your writing this concerto, Earl Scruggs was very much on your mind, I guess, when you were writing it, and he was in the film. He got to be there on the opening night. Uh, said some reassuring words to you, like, <laughs> you, if you made any mistakes, you were the only one who was aware of it, probably. Yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> you know, he, um, he, said, um, he said he had it all right there in your lap. I didn't know what he was saying, and I guess he was just talking about the banjo, because I was sitting down playing the banjo. He had it all right there in your lap. But it was the last performance he came to uh, before he died. He died a couple months later. And um, it was a wonderful thing uh, about the film that we, that we for one, one thing, we multi-tracked and filmed the, the opening night performance and uh, had 10 cameras there. And I warned them that Earl was going to be there and had them find him in the audience. So we, I, I dedicated the piece to him, and he stood up and took a bow, and the whole audience just applauded for him for quite a while. And um, it was a very sweet moment. I know you've probably talked about this a million times, and I won't bore you by prolonging it, but that you actually got into the banjo in part because you heard Earl Scruggs playing the theme to the Beverly Hillbillies That's right. on TV. And I'm not the only one. In fact, if you're going to be a banjo player, hearing Earl Scruggs for the first time is kind of like lighting the fuse on the Mission Impossible show. <laughs> suddenly, you're, you're like, wow, what happened? And so many people start playing banjo after hearing him, and it doesn't matter what. It, it could be Foggy Mountain Breakdown, it could be the, the Beverly Hillbillies theme, like it was for me, it could be a radio show, it could be a Carnegie Hall uh, concert that they did, but you hear the sound of that banjo and you're, you know, you just have to go find one. And it's only with, uh, you know, with banjo players to be that have not been activated yet. And it doesn't happen with all banjo players. Like, uh, it, it, it seems to take Earl Scruggs to light the fuse with people, so that's one of the profundities about Earl Scruggs. I mean, a lot of guys got a lot more technically advanced than him. You know, before too long after he got on the scene, there was Don Reno and Eddie Adcock and Sonny Osborne and all these people that were, you know, doing new things, adding on to his thing. But nobody had that impact that he had. And even as he continued on, he just activated banjo player after banjo player after banjo player and sent them on their path. What was it about his sound, do you think? Um... Well, I mean, he's just a great musician. Um, there was a warmth, there's a, a primitive quality, and yet this very high-tech uh, virtuosity. And also he was very into the melody. And so even though it might sound like a cascade of notes, the melody was always firmly embedded in there. And, and uh, I guess his mother 
gave him a bunch of crap when he was a kid playing the banjo and said, I can't tell what you're playing. I can't hear play the melody. And he took it to heart, and he always played the melody in some in some way, but he always found a new way to do it. But there's something also we talk about in bluegrass, which is drive. Like drive is one of the key components to bluegrass, which sometimes it means that the music is actually speeding up, but it doesn't have to. It's an intensity and a forward push in the rhythm, and he, he had that, you know, way, way, way back. Mm. Mm. I remember the first time I heard him as a kid, and it was that, I think you hit on it, it was that combination of, this is somehow rootsy, uh, it feels like it's got history behind it, uh, folk history, but it's sophisticated, it's complicated, yeah. it's almost space age at the same time, it's real old, you know? <laughs> right, and if you heard the same notes played by a computer or even a, a, a keyboard player playing it on a, a synthesizer, it wouldn't have the same impact, because it's that combination of this incredible sophistication with this down-home earthiness. And, like, I'm not from, you know, the South. I'm not from any place where the banjo uh, has, has that, oh, that deep root. I'm from New York City, and yet it, it had the same effect on me as it had on everybody else. Um, so in working with an orchestra, um, there's, a, there's a wonderful scene in the movie where you go out to sort of meet the members of the orchestra, the Nashville uh, Symphony Orchestra that was going to premiere your concerto, and you learn about their instruments, and the instruments have personalities, they have comfort zones, and as a composer, you should know about those things. Uh, it was very fun to watch you familiarize yourself with all of them. What did you learn about the banjo, an instrument that obviously isn't part of the classical world at all, <laughs> or maybe it is now, uh, and its voice and its personality uh, versus the personalities of, say, these other instruments that are, you know, sort of card-carrying members of, of the orchestra. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, well, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I wanted to confound the expectations. Like, in the second movement, I had a real goal to, um, to play with a lot of space and mood, which you don't expect from the banjo. People are always saying, like, oh, you can't do a sad song on the banjo. <laughs> you can't play, you know, you can't make somebody cry with a banjo, you know, or something, you know. And, and so... My goal was to, but I wasn't trying to emulate another instrument by playing it that way. I was just looking for the sounds I could, you know, show that with. And, and uh, even there's even a place in the second movement where I'm kind of playing as slow as I possibly can, which is hard for banjo players to do because our notes don't last that long. We have to leave spaces between the notes. Uh, I did realize that the banjo is a completely unique instrument in the orchestra, just as every instrument in the orchestra should be. And when I say that... Uh, I'm thinking that, you know, the timpani has its completely different character from the other percussion instruments. Um, the harp has its sound. The oboe has its sound. Uh, and some instruments are, have been incorporated into orchestral music later on that were actually ethnic. And, uh, and, and when I think about that, I think about the marimba. The sure, yeah. Or even saxophone you sometimes see in the mm -hmm. trombone. You know, there's all these kind of uh, different instruments that have found their way into the orchestra simply because they have a sound that's unique from the others. And I'm not saying that the banjo, you know, needs to be in every orchestra, but, you know, there are certain pieces that feature different instruments uh, in, or in, or in orchestral music, and the banjo has uh, as much of a sonic right to that kind of respect as any other instrument with its own personal character. Yeah, you made an interesting point um, that uh, you can't sustain notes. I mean unlike most of the other orchestral instruments. 
Well, I can do tre- I could do tremolos. Yes, you can do that. And I can create the sound of a flow. Yeah. Flowing sound um, of like an ostinato that rings where the notes ring into each other and go back and forth and do trills or things like that to create the effect of sustain, but it isn't actually sustain. I have maybe my open strings might sustain for three or four seconds, but right. most of my closed notes are, are shorter and I have to sort of will you to hear them as being longer when I'm trying to play with more space or let the spaces sit empty, which is very hard to do when you're, when you're taught to play fast your whole life. Right, right. And, and that is something that one can hear in this concerto. You can hear that contrast uh, and that, um, that tension, you know, between the orchestra making these big and su- often sustained sounds and, the, and the, uh, the banjo with its lighter, sort of real discreet, plucked sound it's a very immediate sound also. It happens instantly where some sounds, uh, you know, take a little while to fill up the room. Yeah. Uh, the band is very sudden. Uh, another thing that might be interesting for people is um, that I tried to write things that I couldn't write on the banjo on, for the orchestra. And I, I like to play with tensions because my banjo tensions, I can play some real dense chords, but they're over so fast that they don't really strike tensions like the way if you can have, have uh, two, uh, two sustained instruments hold a half step apart or, 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 or a cluster of four or five very dissonant close notes and let them just hang in the air uh, as long as you want, that's something I can't do on the banjo, but I could do it in writing. So I use that device quite a bit, and I, I kind of think of it almost as like when you're getting a massage and they find that trigger point that's like it hurts so good, <laughs> but they just stay on it, and, they hold, and you're like, oh, that's really good, but it hurts. And that's what dissonance is like to me, and and I was able to write that way uh, in this piece where I could I could just hold that dissonance and release it when I was ready, and that was really fun. Mm-hmm. And to play with a with a two second note. Mm. You, you know, there's a, a point in the film where you're talking a little bit about having been involved in concertos before. The two that you mentioned, uh, one with Edgar Meyer and another with Edgar Meyer and uh, the tabla player Zakir Hussein. Edgar Meyer, for those who don't know, is a very accomplished bassist um, who does everything from country to uh, to classical. Uh, but you make a point that, you know, during those productions, a conductor, for instance, treated you guys, you and uh, in uh, the one case, Zakir as well, as sort of like, uh, you know, not real classical guys. Yeah, and it wasn't anything personal. I mean, the truth is we couldn't converse uh, 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 at the same level of detail that Edgar could with him, and it was just much more pragmatic to let Edgar do that. But at times it would actually turn up in the programs that, that it was a, uh, Edgar, Bela, and Zakir playing a piece written by Edgar, and that just simply wasn't true. So maybe I developed a little bit of a feeling like, well, you know, if I write my own piece, then they'll know Edgar didn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> so did you have something to prove, though? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, a lot of my friends have, have written concertos, and I've watched them do it, and I've armchair quarterbacked from the audience and said, hmm, I wonder why he did that. Or, you know, well, that really worked, but that didn't work, you know, which is, is every listener's right, you know, even with your best friends up on stage, or maybe even in particular with your best friends up on stage. But to get in that hot seat myself was something I, I did put off for a long time. And, um, but Edgar, uh, Mark O'Connor, Zakir, um, Chris Steely, you know, I saw all of their, uh, their concertos, and, um, you know, it's a great learning experience because I like to sit and mull it over and then try to figure out what, what would I do, and eventually I got my chance. Um, I would think one of the 
the caveats of someone coming from a small ensemble background, a non-classical background, composing for orchestra would be the people who do that sometimes don't fully utilize the orchestra. Um, they may use it almost like a single instrument or a couple of instruments in a small band, but not to its potential, which is incredible, you know? Yeah, it is. Uh, was that on your mind as you composed? It was. It was. And, but also, um, you know, talking with Edgar a bunch about what an orchestra does well and what it doesn't do well, and, and having my own experiences with the two concertos that we did about how complicated to write things and I mean, one thing an orchestra can do great is a lot of stuff at once. Yes. You know, but you don't, don't necessarily want it to be as intricate as the flectones might play. You know, the kinds of stuff that we do, it, it, it could turn into a big mess <laughs> with an orchestra. Because, hey, you know, there are, some of them are 60 feet apart from each other, so they're all relying on one central conductor to, uh, to, to lead them through. And it's one step removed from actually playing with each other, which you can do in a small group. You know yes. what I'm saying? So, like, if there's four people and they're all sitting right next to each other, they can respond to each other in real time, where with an orchestra there's people that there's, there's just no way they can respond because their sound is getting to the other people so late that if they start to play with each other across the stage, it's going to be a disaster in the audience. So all of that kind of stuff is stuff that, honestly, you know, I don't know, but I'm aware of enough to, to, to make attempts to be careful or to, you know, to try to do things I thought would work. And maybe maybe I made some moves that that shouldn't have worked that did, and some made some moves that that uh, should have worked and didn't. But um, it was really really fun to try. And you uh, you gave um, the contrabassoon its own moment, which yes. one of the least glamorous instruments <laughs> uh, in the orchestra. Yeah, I remember a friend of mine who played the bassoon once told me, maybe with a little disdain, the contrabassoon sounds like a whale farting. Yeah, but you met the contrabassoon player in the uh, Nashville um, Symphony Orchestra, and you told him you're going to write a good part for him. <laughs> well, you know, if you were, you know, from another planet and you went under the water and a whale went by and farted, you might think he was talking to you <laughs> or even singing, right? So yeah. it's all in the ear of the beholder. But um, yeah, this guy was uh, just a really cool guy. Um, he was a lifer, committed contrabassoon player who loved the instrument deeply. And so when I got him to show me the instrument, he said, you know, God, people always make me play the dumbest stuff. Why don't, you know, I hope you come up with something, you know, that, that I can do. And I, I was like, yeah, that, that sounds great, you know. And he played the instrument for me, and I thought it sounded amazing. So, you know, now all these other contrabassoon players have to play the part. And I think it's even become uh, an audition piece for contrabassoon players. Oh, wow. Which is pretty neat. Yes. This means it's hard, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's great. So you actually have made a mark, you know? I guess so. <laughs> In the orchestral world. Um, you know, it's funny, because I've known for years, of course, that you uh, were named after Bela Bartok. And I had always assumed that you probably knew his music intimately, you know, and that you couldn't help but know it intimately, because people would always be coming up to you and saying, you know, oh, Bartok, I love him, and have you heard this piece or that piece? What was a huge surprise for me watching this documentary was that until you started composing your own concerto, you had never really listened to Bartok. Yeah. Well, there's, a, there's some, some, some complex reasons for it. I mean, Bartok is one of those guys that not everybody takes to on first listening, and I can only compare it to Bill Monroe. You know, when you first hear him, if you're not uh, coming from a place where you know country music and like rootsy, rough edge stuff, 
it sounds really rough. You're like, ooh, that's some crazy thing, and I don't know what that is. Um, but just like coffee, you know, when you first drink a cup of coffee when you're a kid, and you're like, ooh, why did they drink that? Um, a few years later, you think it's the greatest stuff ever. And so I think I had to grow into a place where I could appreciate Bartok. Um, uh, we're, ju- we're just really, we're how different it was really made sense to me. It's like when you're new to everything, you don't understand how different something is. It just is. You just hear it and you go, well, that's that and that's that and that's that. But you don't have a context to place it in. But now I have a context to place Bartok in. And then being named after him um, by, uh, I come from a, a split-up family and my father was sort of not on the scene, uh, didn't, not even not on the scene, but non-existent from age one until I went to meet him in my 40s. Um, didn't make me want to embrace my names. I was like, okay, I've got these names, but I, you know, I'm not necessarily excited about it. Um, so after all of my experiences uh, up till then, um, it was like, I, it's, maybe it's a good time to get over this <laughs> now that I'm writing this piece, and here I am, like fulfilling my destiny. That you know, even though the guy that gave me the names wasn't a father to me, um, it just seemed like a good time to just go head to head with all that stuff. Then I just got into the music, and, and then it was like, wow, this is some cool stuff. So Yeah, you refer to him as a badass in the movie. He's a badass. <laughs> He's such a badass. He's such a, an iconocla- iconoclastic individualist and, um, and character. So what character? And uh, not afraid to really be different. But, you know, when you get to know it, it doesn't sound dissonant anymore. It just sounds really fresh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's all that folk influence, you know, the uh, wonderful uh, Hungarian and Romanian music that he yeah. he discovered or or collected and then worked into his classical pieces. You know, repeated exposure to something like I know, like my wife Abigail um, loves Chinese music. You know, she she she's a Chinophile, I guess you could call it, but she studied Chinese, speaks really well, and and goes over there and performs with Chinese musicians. And when I first heard it, it didn't really hit me. You know, it felt very alien. But then as I got into it, I just completely got over that, and then I could just love it, like, you know, simply based on how good what I was hearing was, not based on the whole thing being repellent somehow, which Bartok was for me at first, too. I knew it was cool stuff, but I wasn't really turned on by it, and now I am. Does it, has it made you feel differently, then, about your name? Yeah, I think it was a really good, good gift, that name. Um, I, I'm totally cool with my name, and uh, so... Yeah, I mean, some of this stuff is personal, so I'm telling you what I'm comfortable talking about. But yeah, um, all in all, it was a really good experience for me uh, to go go head head to head with some of this stuff. And Bela Flex Banjo Concerto, The Imposter, had its West Coast premiere just two days ago on the opening night of this year's Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music. I'm Robert Polly, and you're listening to the Seventh Avenue Project. Coming up next, another composer whose work was featured in the opening night concert of the Cabrillo Festival, Dylan Mattingly. But uh, first, a little more music from Bela Fleck. This is what he did for an encore after the concerto.
All right, time for part two of today's 7th Avenue Project, a conversation with the composer Dylan Mattingly. His new orchestral piece, Sky Madrigal, premiered at the Cabrillo Festival this past Friday night, and I spoke to Dylan uh, just a couple days before that first performance. He grew up in Berkeley. Uh, He's now studying at Yale. He's been writing music since he was practically a tot, and by now he's an old hand at the advanced age of 23. His mentors include John Adams, who called him a hugely talented composer of wild imagination and vigorous energy. And you'll see what John Adams was talking about when we play some examples. Like Bela Fleck, uh, Dylan was named for an illustrious musical predecessor, but it didn't take him quite so long to come to terms with his namesake. Do you have any idea how many kids were named after Bob Dylan in the last 20, 30 years? Yeah, there are a lot of Dylans running around these days. But you like Bob Dylan. Yeah, I love Bob Dylan. But it did. It took me a while. I didn't listen to really anything non-classical until until like sixth grade. I tried to get into punk rock because that's what all my friends were listening to. <laughs> and you know, I'd pretend to like it. I'd go around, yeah, it's great. I really like this one song because my friend bought it for me and I, I listened to it. What was it? Uh, I don't know. It was by Bad Religion. Uh, um, but you were faking it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and then... You probably I, weren't the only one. I'm sure I wasn't, yeah. But I, ha- I had some experience at some point where I, I think I, I listened to Highway 61 Revisited and then I realized that like non-classical music could be something that I have real emotions for. And so that that was when I first started getting into anything that wasn't classical. I mostly listened to like Shostakovich before that. <laughs> Up until sixth grade. Yeah. How how does a kid that young, you know, focus solely on classical in the modern world, you know, in modern America? <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, <laughs> I, I had a, it's before iTunes. So, um, you know, it had to do with my CD collection. I'd put the, you know, put the Shostakovich cello concerto in the CD player and it would stay there. Um, well, you had good taste, I gotta say. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I like that piece. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I didn't have access to everything out there. And once I started to find more things, then that was actually also about the time iTunes came out. And so then uh, really opened things up. Mm. You had been playing and composing classical music how long at that point? Since what age? Uh, I started writing music at, I think, six or seven. What was uh, the first piece you wrote? The first one I remember was... Uh, a uh, solo cello piece. I played cello, and um, it, it was, it's called Hana Highway and Moa Waters. It was uh, inspired by a trip to Hawaii when I was six or seven. Maui. Yeah, uh, yeah. Hana is the the uh, the rainy side, the east side of Maui, where uh, you have to go across the Hana Highway, which is like thirty-five miles and five hundred and fifty turns or something like that, and fifty-nine one-lane bridges, and takes takes you like three hours to drive. 30 miles and uh, you get there and it's like uh, totally the the land that time forgot and it's you're just in this really ancient um setting with a baseball field and a general store and a volcano how perfect you play baseball too yeah yeah that's great so that was my my first moment of inspiration uh it sounded sounded kind of like the end of firebird for solo cello were you trying to capture that sort of curving swooping path of the the road itself right that was that was the idea Uh uh-huh and you've been composing steadily ever since yeah yeah i would say so was that ever an intimidating prospect or did you just start young enough that you were never really overawed by the the history of composition yeah, I, I definitely wasn't. And it might have had to do with my limited CD collection. Again, <laughs> I kind of felt like, you know, I, I had I listened to some music and I 
could swear there was music that I would like that that didn't exist, and so I had to write it. So you started out in this comfortable space of not really feeling crowded by all the things that had come before, you know, of inventing things that you thought, you know, for the first time. When when do you think, though, you became fully yourself as a composer, if, you, if, if you've reached that point? Yeah, um, let's see, just before I left for college, uh, I, I wrote a piece for two pianos with one tuned down a quarter tone, and the middle, it's a three-moment piece, and the middle movement of it, it's called Cloud Atlas, it's named after the book by David Mitchell, which I absolutely love, um, and it quoted a song by Joni Mitchell, Amelia, uh, from Hey Jira, it's a great album, and it, it quotes it kind of in unison with the two pianos with one tune down a quarter tone. And when it's in unison off by a quarter tone, it's just got this incredible shimmer. Ooh, I wish I could hear it right now. Uh, yeah, I don't think I have it around, <laughs> but I can send it to you. Um, but um, and, and at that moment, I, I kind of knew that I was writing something that I had not heard before and I don't think existed and that was uh, in harmony with whatever I was. Hmm. Uh, what do you think that is? What is it about you that was captured in that piece of music? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I'm not sure it's anything about me anymore, but it certainly was about me in that split second. Uh, there's something about adventure in, in that. Obviously, it's a song about Amelia Earhart, who became a big inspiration of mine. And I re- later wrote a big, huge piece about Amelia Earhart. But um, something in that sense of, wanting to explore and and the idea that you could dedicate your one human life to something that's so big that it could take your entire life um, and you could really create something amazing like that. That was very inspiring. Hmm. Um, so whereas some people would say, oh, she, she didn't make it. <laughs> Just, we don't know. That. You're inspired by her disappearance, huh? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, let's play the the piece that you just mentioned because I do have a recording of that. Um, and this is Atlas of Somewhere on the Way to Howland Island. It's like a two movement piece. Yeah, for chamber orchestra. Yeah, chamber orchestra. It's performed by Contemporaneous, which is my group in New York. And you still are in part of that group. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you guys were based at Bard College for a while. Yeah, we were... st- we started at Bard. We formed at Bard, and initially it was just me and. Um, my friend David Bloom, who's absolutely the best conductor in the world, um, just trying to wrangle people and trick them into playing music that we wanted to play. We wanted to we wanted to do the music that, like I was talking about, the music that is totally in sync with what we're feeling, and that music is the music that's being created right now. And uh, so it started with us just you know saying, "Hey, come to you know we'll give you free pizza." <laughs> um, and over the years, we eventually found other people who wanted to do the same things as us who are also incredible musicians. And so now it's it's got a core of 19 people who are all extremely dedicated and really incredible, and it's in New York City. Well, I'm going to let you guide us. Why don't you pick whatever part of this piece you'd like for yeah. us to play right now? Yeah, go for the beginning. You'll hear the rhythm of the radial engine of her Lockheed Tenny spinning up and... and the flight begins. And the name of the movement is? Radio Liftoff Music for Amelia Earhart. Radio Liftoff Music for Amelia Earhart.
Heartless on the Way to Somewhere, Radio Liftoff Music for Amelia Earhart. By my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project, Dylan Mattingly. Dylan, I'd like to hear how those sounds came together. So I actually, I got the uh, recording of the Lockheed 10E radial engine from the Amelia Earhart Society um, to, <laughs> to listen to. So that, that very opening really is pretty direct transcription of that rhythm of the the spinning engine but um, on marimba for instance yeah it's a marimba and piano and yeah. unison and then strings and everybody else comes in but um the that opening actually i a lot of the time i work with uh with post-it notes i'll have kind of emotional markers on post-it notes uh to give me some sort of peripheral idea of the emotional journey that the audience is going to feel when they listen to the piece. And do you start with that before yeah, you've always. actually conceived of the sounds themselves? Always, yeah. So an emotional sort of path that you want to travel with the piece before you discover the sounds that express that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think for for a composer, whether it's what you're thinking about or not, you're creating an experience for the listener that surpasses language. It's not like when we're when we're talking we can understand what we're saying but it doesn't necessarily set off an instant emotional response in your body it doesn't make your your hair stand up and music definitely does that so you have a responsibility i think as a composer to know what journey you're giving to everybody who's donated their time to you and so yeah i'll always start by creating the map of what they're going to be feeling and um the thing about that beginning is that well, the reason I use post-it notes is because you can move them around. Mm-hmm. And um, that beginning was the final post-it note of the 36-minute piece. And what did it say? Um, ecstasy. <laughs> I think you got it. I, I feel like at that opening, real hopefulness, you know, inspiration, uh, liftoff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, there's definitely a, there's a sense of even knowing where the journey goes, there's just a miraculousness to being in the air, I think, and to more metaphorically being at the beginning of something that you know is is beyond what's happened before, which is just really exciting. And so, yeah, so I had a moment in the compositional process when I, I looked at that. And, you know, as a composer, I'm always trying to make sure that I'm not afraid of things and that I'm writing exactly what I want to be writing despite anything, you know, despite tradition not that i'm ignoring tradition but i don't want it i don't want it to make me question what i think is going to be the best thing to write so i I looked at that ending and and thought you know that would be it would be better as a beginning the the reason it isn't the beginning is because how could you possibly top that beginning but uh but i said what the hell and uh, let's go for it and i moved it to the beginning i kind of want to play the ending now should we do that yeah let's do that let's do that
Wow. Um, I'm maybe misinterpreting, but I hear the radial engine sputtering and failing in that at the, at the end there. What's going on there for you? Well, my my image of what happens at the end there is uh, that ending is actually after her death. Oh, really? Whatever happens to ah. her. And it's, she's, she's becoming a constellation. The, the, uh, the marking in the score at that letter X, I think, in, in the second moment is uh, Starship. And ah. so whatever, whatever sort of airplane she had before has been transformed into something a little bit more celestial. Um, so your music is driven by emotion and driven by, in some cases, narrative. Yeah, sometimes. Not, not always. But. Not always, yeah. But it, it's interesting because it's not true of all composers. I mean, some might think of it more abstractly as solving a musical problem, reconciling various kinds of themes or taking on right. certain structures and varying them, that kind of thing. They wouldn't think of it as necessarily always evoking a specific set of emotions. And really, you're describing a process in which your feelings are the audience's feelings, right? Yeah, I think that 100% of the time that's true in music. Um, not necessarily that the composer has successfully expressed whatever their emo- emotions were or that they're trying to, but I think that music is always an experience of an emotion and... Might as well admit it, huh? Exactly. You, you <laughs> might as well take control. <laughs> it is for me, certainly. Um, although I, I must admit that, you know, I sort of felt like when I was learning about modernism, and as modernism became sometimes more abstract, I felt like, oh, I shouldn't be experiencing this emotionally. You know, <laughs> I should be experiencing it intellectually only. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe that's an emotion, some sort of mm-hmm. intellectual pursuit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, an emotion of... Uh, I don't know if I get this. <laughs> right. And is that the emotion that they were trying to get across? You, you have to guess no, but... <laughs> well, you think Schoenberg was thinking that? Well, I find Schoenberg's music to be extremely... So jazzy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, especially the the solo piano pieces. I listen to that and I just can't believe that that he's writing, imagining this as totally intellectual. Yeah. Because it's absolutely evocative of the you know of the late teens and early 20s mm-hmm. now it is yeah at the time it might have been so jarring to people right but so were the late teens and early 20s yeah you reminded me of the fact that each new um generation of composers has more and more historical precedent to sort of play with and mm-hmm. remix yeah and fewer and fewer rules really yeah uh, unless you make them up yourself Absolutely. Um, what would you say about someone your age? You're 24 now, is that right? 23. 23. Sorry, I aged you a little bit there. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say about someone who's who's writing at this period in time? It's kind of a golden age to be a composer because there isn't that expectation that you're writing in one musical model. You have a lot to draw from, and you have a, a very easily accessible uh, pile of material that is influencing you all the time and that is going to be funneled into some sort of synthesis. And above that, it's, um, you know, there, there was a point in time when if everybody has the same things coming to them and everybody's life is very similar, you know, if everybody's working on the farm and listening to one type of music, the amount of original expression is probably going to be lower than if, if you know, 7 billion people are listening all the time to all the music of all 7 billion people. Any any amount of synthesis is going to create something different from the last roll of the dice. Mm-hmm. So it's an exciting time to be a composer as long as you can really, you know, understand yourself 
Uh, yeah, and, and not get lost in all the variety and just yeah. become kind of a, a pastiche artist, right? Right, and I think there was a period of, uh, like in the in the 80s, a lot of classical music, uh, there's a lot of pastiche going on. Mm-hmm. And I think that as the the beginnings of the, of the digital age for classical composers, that was kind of the model. Um, even earlier than that, the Berlioz Symphonia, for instance, is a classic example of, um, of figuring out what to do with the uh, all the influences coming in. That's a great piece, but uh, I think it, it's moving towards a world where people are creating their own musics that's not necessarily a, a combination of other musics, but comes from lots of traditions. Well, maybe an example of that would be uh, a piece that I think is has not been commercially released, but that you have um, shared with me. Yeah. The Bacchae? Yes. Tell us about this cycle, if that's the right word, um, based on the Euripides play, right? Yeah. Um, it's So it's my music for the seven choruses, which are all the choruses in within the Bacchae. And... Um, Ancient Greek tragedy was much closer to a musical than than a play, and in fact, the the tradition goes that all of drama actually came out of the music. It started with with the dithyrams, and it's just ecstatic dancing and singing. You and should then, define a dithyram for us. Uh, it's a <laughs> it's a it's an ode in some ways of a, a dance and a song that uh, celebrates the god, and from that. Some you know, someone stepped out of the chorus and, and spoke back to them, mm-hmm. and uh, that that's the apocryphal story of the beginnings of drama. Um, so so the Bacchae was written in 404 BC by Euripides, and it's right at the end of the Athenian Empire, and the civilization was about to be destroyed, and the question was what went wrong, and so this play was about Dionysus, who's the god of art and wine and sex, and he shows up in Thebes and the king of Thebes is this young guy who's worried about keeping order and Dionysus drives everybody in town crazy and Pentheus the king is trying to figure out how to stop this problem and he imprisons Dionysus and Dionysus in the crux of the play asks Pentheus well don't you want to see what's happening on the mountain Pentheus says more than anything I want to see that and so then at that moment Pentheus is turned and he um, seems to be on drugs, and he goes up to the mountain. and Where the rites, the Dionysian rites are happening. Right, exactly. And he, uh, he, he's dressed like a woman, of course, to try and hide, and uh, doesn't help instantly. He's found by the women, and they tear him apart, rip him into a million pieces, and play ball with his flesh, which is an ancient, one ancient Greek word. And um, What, what, what? A single ancient Greek word to play ball with flesh. It was used that often that they made a word out of it? Yes. <laughs> Ooh. Um, so uh, so Pentheus is killed, and Dionysus returns to the city, and he's up on the rafters at this point in the play and says, I told you I was a god. Why didn't why didn't you believe me? And there's this sense of, at the beginning of the play, we're, we're really on Dionysus' side. He, he just wants to have a good time. What's with this king trying to stop everybody from partying? And at the end of the play... Dionysus has killed the main character, and everybody else is very upset, and Dionysus just leaves, and we're left with this strange, it's a very strange play, and we have, we're, we have to ask ourselves, you know, we're, we're devotees of art, we're there to see the play, we all are pro-art, and yet this play seems to be about the destructive force of at least creative madness. 
need a little bit of Apollonian moderation, right? <laughs> right. To well, go with the Dionysian side. N- Nietzsche's uh, <laughs> The Birth of Tragedy is all about the how the Bacchae, well, it's not all about, but he talks about how the Bacchae is the moment when the Dionysian takes over and the Apollonian is removed from from tragedy, and that's the that's the death of tragedy. Aha, uh-huh. aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, tell us about the piece of music, and then yeah. we'll we'll hear uh, a portion of it. So the piece is um, it's taken from I I studied ancient Greek and particularly ancient Greek choral meter at, at Bard College. You actually co-majored in it. I got a double degree, so I have a degree in classics. Okay. Um, and um, there's a long history of trying to understand ancient Greek music and trying to force it to fit within our confines of what music is, which is mostly based on Western classical music. And particularly in the classical, in the classics world, where people were not musicians, but they were very well steeped, especially coming from England and Germany. And it's a tradition that's very elitist in its past. And and so everybody was trying to figure out how you could make uh, the rhythms of ancient Greek poetry fit into Beethoven. You know, how how does this progress the, you know, the German music? Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of um, trying to force these really unbelievable rhythms with incredible variety into 3-4 four, oh, or 4-4. Wow. Four, four. Mm-hmm. Um, Not so to it, mention the scales, right? Right, too? exactly. Well, that, that's, that's the other big part of it is that everybody's trying to figure out how the notes fit into equal temperament, the 12 notes we have on the piano. And of course they don't, because that was invented just a few hundred years ago. But, uh, but still, it's, it's just, uh, I think that's ridiculous. But um, <laughs> anyways, so the piece uses just intonation, which is the method of tuning where you tune to the, the mathematical intervals between notes, which are just really the way that you would tune. Plato talks about tuning in the Republic, and he, he describes it as, you know, it's a metaphysical action where, where they're trying to get in sync with the universe. And that, that's what it is because you're listening to notes and you're hearing the vibrations, and then there's a moment when they align perfectly. And that's real tuning. And tuning in equal temperament is it's a temperament. So you're just kind of adjusting little things to get it so that you can play in lots of different keys, which is great. It's very useful, but um, not how they would have done it in ancient Greece. So the, the piece is in just intonation, and it uses the actual um, rhythmic of Euripides' text. And ancient Greek had, each syllable had a length that's either long or short, or a link, which is a very exciting um, thing. So instead of, if iambic pentameter were in ancient Greek, it, it would be a, a length thing rather than a stress. So you'd have hmm. da, 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 rather than da, dun, da, dun, mm-hmm. da, dun, da, dun. So you're saying if you look at uh, Euripides' original text, you you can hear a rhythm. Absolutely. Huh. Yeah. It's in very intricate and really interesting um, rhythmic patterns. Wow. And there would there would have been music. It would have been performed by dancers and singers, and it all would have been happening at once. And the thing that makes it work is that it all would have been memorized. And so if they all know the words, then they all know the rhythm. And so he could write this really, really complicated music and very complicated rhythms, and they could all dance and all sing to it and all play music to it perfectly because they knew the words, and it couldn't have been any other rhythm with the words. But you aren't saying that your composition is a literal attempt to recreate what would have been heard 
It's absolutely 400 not. BC. No, the, the <laughs> Euripides, uh, I have no idea what his music would have sounded like, but I know that it would not have sounded like this. Uh, my, my music is an attempt to recreate perhaps the, the feeling of what it would have been like to be there and, and witness this terrifying and ecstatic play. And, and it does use, it uses the rhythm and it uses a just intonation, which is a, a tuning that I created, not an ancient Greek tuning, um, so that you have a little bit of, of the feel of, of his stuff. But the music is completely my own. Well, let's, uh, let's let everybody feel it. All right. Why don't you play the beginning of the first one again? Okay. And again, this is the Bacchae, uh, composition by my guest Dylan Mattingly, and we're going to play the first chorus. An excerpt there from Chorus One of the Bacchae uh, composition. How many uh, total choruses? Seven? Yeah, seven. By Dylan Mattingly, a uh, young composer who is my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project here on KUSP 88.9 Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Robert Polly. Um, wow, uh, so much to talk about there. Uh, first of all, did I not know the name of this piece? Had I not known that you majored partially in classics? I might have thought, oh, this is one of these very, very modern or postmodern <laughs> compositions. But there are elements there you're saying that are drawn, you know, actually from ancient Greek music. That is ancient Greek we're hearing yeah. sung by the... Absolutely. And the uh, the rhythms of everything you just heard are directly taken from Euripides. Uh, Those polyrhythms? In, in, in the singing, not, not I was in everything say. else. Yeah, okay. yeah, the percussion <laughs> and the piano. Oh, wow. That's some really cool... Yeah, but it shouldn't be missed that... Um, Euripides was part of a style known as the new music in in Athens at the end of the empire, and the music was described as um, totally crazy, and all the uh, traditional composers were very skeptical and saying, "Oh, we can't understand it. The the rhythms have gone insane, and you know we don't we don't know what's happening. There's all these things going on at once. It, it's not there. There's a lot of precedent for um, complexity, especially in in late." 
5th century Athens. Oh, yeah, and his writing. It's full of irony, and oh, yeah. it's layered. I mean, mm-hmm. so it feels really modern. Yeah, definitely. Not so ancient after all. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about some of the modern influences on that sound, though? Well, the thing I was listening to the most when I wrote that piece was uh, Paul Simon's Graceland. And... Um, I wouldn't have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> in the second chorus, there's some there's some singing that's uh, a little bit inspired by Lady Smith, Black Mombazo. Mm. Um, but um, really, I was trying to create an, uh, a new folk music in this piece, uh, like something that you've you've always heard, but but you actually have never heard. Right. Um, and, when did you compose it, by the way? Uh, it was written in. The 2000, beginning of 2013, first half of 2013. And I mentioned that it hasn't been commercially released. Who are we hearing performing? We're listening to Contemporaneous, my my group again in, uh, wow. in New York. Man, they've got a lot of range, that group. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> I say you've got a lot of range. Do you perform in it as well? Yeah, I play cello in Contemporaneous. Wow, really impressive. Uh, why don't we play just a little bit more of the Bacchae? Great. Um, which chorus would you like to hear next? Um, why don't you play... Why don't you play the beginning of the second chorus? Okay. Well, that was the opening of uh, chorus number two from the Bacchae, a uh, composition by Dylan Mattingly, who I'm talking to today here on the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Uh, Dylan, were those, in fact, kazoos that we heard? Those were, yeah, <laughs> four kazoos. <laughs> Ancient Greek instrument. Yes, famous. <laughs> Talk about, again, that part of the composition, because it's really quite different from the one we heard from the, the part we heard from the first chorus. Right. So, again, I'm tracking the emotional the emotional content of of the choruses in the Euripides and so the first one 
it's a it's a celebration, and it's uh, the the Bacchae who are the followers of Dionysus. The female followers of Dionysus have arrived from the east, and they're these foreigners who are playing music. That's, that's what's happening in the play. They they come and they're playing some sort of music that nobody's ever heard before, but it's it's very powerful. Um, and so so that first one is just total celebration, and you see some of the extreme ecstasy that. Dionysus has given to his followers. Uh, the second chorus is much more foreboding. They are warning Pentheus, the king, about what may or may not happen to him if he crosses Dionysus. And uh, you get the sense that actually it's not all fun and games with the Bacchae, but they're potentially weren't, evil. Weren't they the ones who killed Orpheus too? They were, yeah, very good. <laughs> Man, they were, uh, they were dangerous. I yeah, mean, very dangerous. They, were, they had a lot of fun, but could go wrong at any time exactly yeah (laughs) (laughs) um i I found a nice quote of yours i think it was from an interview where you said personally i don't want to write music unless i have something to say with it Hmm. yeah absolutely still true yeah it's still true so every piece of yours is saying something there's no i mean there's a lot of music in the world and we can choose what to listen to as an audience and i don't want to add anything to to that unless there's something that that I feel is necessary for someone to hear. You don't necessarily mean it has to be a statement, right? No, it doesn't have to be a statement, but mm. but something in the human experience that I want to make felt by someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Bakai, I've listened to four of the choruses and it's definitely a challenging piece. It's really listenable, uh but I would have to say it's not like any music I've heard. Well, that's good. Yeah, 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 it's really true. Um, what made you choose to, to major, along with um, your music major, in classics? I've always been interested in kind of parallel existences. And there's something, in the study of classics, we often think of what we're trying to do in history in general. What we're trying to do is see how you know, these events led to these events, which eventually got us to the present. That's not really the draw of classics to me, although that's very interesting. But to me, what's really interesting is to see how a world, our world, existed at a point in time when everything was so different. And we can compare it because we have language and we have some history that's been brought down to us. But we can see how the world might work in a different way, which I think is really interesting. And that perspective allows you to see the present with different eyes. You know, it's funny, um, thinking about the distant past, there's, we have a tendency, um, when I say we, I just mean popular culture, to imagine that the further back you go, the more magical things were, uh, yeah, <laughs> right? That's true. You used to go back to the dirty, filthy, messed up, ignorant Middle Ages, and all of a sudden they become a wonderland with castles and... right. Just well, pure fantasy. They, I mean, they've always had that tend in in the Iliad. Homer mentions that. Well, in the story, you know, it's it's written down somewhere around 800 BC. There probably was no actual one person who was Homer, but in there, the narrator oh, says, "Oh, please, no Homer." Yeah, yeah. Sorry, no, <laughs> no Homer. Blind bard. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the the bard says something along the lines of. Now, of course, people were, you know, way stronger back then. They were pretty much gods. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've always felt like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when you study history, 
I think if you want to get a real feeling, you've got to let go of all that. You've got to imagine yeah. they were flesh and blood, you know, messed up mortals just like you and me, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think that that's part of what draws me to Euripides because of, of the three tragedians whose work we have, he's the one who writes about the messed up mortals. The most, yeah. Sophocles, yeah. Aeschylus, they do it too, but not quite to that extent. Yeah. Yeah. There's only three. Yeah, there's, I mean, we know about a lot more, but really it's just three that we have full Whose place. texts have survived. Yeah. It's amazing that they have. It's wonderful that they have. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about a, another piece of yours. This is a new piece for orchestra that will premiere at this year's Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music on the opening night. In fact, it will be the opening piece of the opening night concert. Why don't you give us the backstory on this one? Because like so many pieces of yours, it does have some direct references to stories and events. It does. It, it's a little bit more abstract than some of my other pieces, but the main thing in this piece is that it's about the human desire to create perfection in a world that is clearly imperfect in a beautiful way. And I was thinking a lot about 13th and 14th century music, particularly in the era actually that comes right after that. Composers were trying to create music that abided by the perfect structures of the universe as handed down by God. And um, the, there was this sense that they could build cathedrals with their music. And there, there was a piece that demonstrated the dimensions of, of a dome. At the same time, in, in architecture, they were building real cathedrals. Mm -hmm. And we, we have a long history of putting right angles into the natural world. And it's a really, I find it to be a really interesting thing because that's not the surface of the earth onto which we're born, certainly. Mm -hmm. And so this piece was about that, that feeling of trying to find perfection in the, in the chaotic world. Part of the inspiration along those lines was the life of George Mallory, who was a British mountaineer, and then he, he died in 1924 as perhaps the first person to climb Everest because what happened was he brought his videographer along and took, took the photo <laughs> of him stepping up into the cloud and that's it. And he wasn't seen for 75 years until 75 years later, they found his body on the side of the mountain and it looked like he might've been coming back from the top. And in his wallet, there was no photograph of his wife. And he had said that he would place that photograph on top of Everest when he reached the summit. This has been disputed forever. Did Mallory, who disappeared, uh, really get to the summit or did he die on his way up? Right. It's easy to think of this as a, as a tragedy, which it obviously is. He died. But the piece is more interested in this idea that Mallory gave his, he gave his entire life to something that really had, had no... Uh, utility in the world. There's no reason for him to climb Everest. He was asked at one point uh, why he would do it, and he famously said, because it's there. Mm -hmm. um, but what he was interested in was some sort of perfect joy, you know, being being that person at the top um, and being so far above anything else. Who can say, <laughs> you know, that doesn't necessarily sound fun to me, but the idea that he could fashion his life into such like a, a cathedral, you know, he, he created out of his own life, a perfect structure. And so I was inspired by his kind of narrative arc that he lived and by the um, motets of the 14th century. And so my piece, Sky Madrigal, it, it's really for George Mallory or in memoriam. Um, 
But uh, it's there isn't some magicals. I'm not religious, and so the magical is the secular uh, sequel to the motet. So it, it's my putting my hat into the ring uh, in terms of those strange 14th century compositions. And those are vocal pieces you're talking about. I mean, the madrigal. Mm-hmm. But your piece is not vocal, right? No, it's not. <laughs> it's just orchestral. Yeah, it's a, it's an imaginary madrigal. And it, it's not following the form of a madrigal. No. You, you're using madrigal very loosely. Yes, very loosely. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh, aha. Uh-huh. This is not the first time you've written a piece inspired by a adventurer who disappeared in the midst of their adventures. Yeah, that's there's, definitely something that... There's this other piece about Amelia Earhart that you did. Right, there's something about that that life that, that speaks to me. And it's not really that I think I would want to do that. But at the same time, I, I'm very inspired by the idea that we can give ourselves totally to something. And there's nothing more indicative of giving yourself totally to something than actually disappearing at the very moment that you've achieved it. Um, not that Amelia Earhart achieved it, but she <laughs> came very close. You know what would be really cool, Dylan, is right at the end, the last note of the premiere of Sky Magical, <laughs> if you somehow disappeared from the auditorium. That's good. Yeah, we'll work on that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I um, I first listened to the piece in its like uh, embryonic form, like a lot of composers, you work on computer, right? With software that simulates the sound of various instruments. That's the the final step. I do a lot of work before I get to entering into the computer. Most Like I was talking about post-it notes. I use post-it yeah, notes yeah. Uh, to create a map. And I, I'm always doing stuff on paper or on my wall. And I'll, I'll have figured out a lot of the the structure of the piece before I start writing notes usually. Oh, yeah. okay. But at some point... It enters the computer yeah. where you use MIDI sounds to simulate the sound of an orchestra, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the version I first heard. And honestly, I knew only the title. I didn't know the backstory at all. But I was already seeing images of mountaintops above the clouds and things like that. It has a real ethereal quality. That's great. A real high-altitude quality about it. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's certainly an ascent. Yeah. There's no doubt. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are you hoping for from this piece, which is so new, you know, that you yourself have not heard it played in its, you know, final form? Well, the moment of hearing uh, an orchestra perform your music, if you haven't heard it before, is it's unparalleled. It's incredible. And particularly with this orchestra, which is just amazing, and Marin is so fantastic, there's... there's um, there's no chance that it won't exceed my expectation. And we, we talked about the, the MIDI recording that, that you've heard. And, you know, it's a, you can kind of hear what's going on, but you don't really know what it's going to feel like. And as a composer, I, I listen to that a lot because one of the, really the thing that I'm listening for is timing. And so I'll, when I'm writing the piece, I just listen to it nonstop. I've probably heard it a thousand times um, because I'm, I'm looking for those moments that, just feel like you need something different and so by the time by the time it's done i know that i'm a hundred percent happy with everything in it really so you're not like me. you're not like haunted by no oh i wish i'd changed that oh no absolutely not oh, because that's it, it very would drive nice. me crazy until yeah. i got there yeah some people i know 
never really feel finished. I know. Yeah, it's 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 a different model. <laughs> huh. Huh. So by the time your pieces premiere, you're at peace. Yeah, that's true. That's nice. Um, but um, but I've listened to that MIDI so many times that when you hear the real people play it, I, you know, I know what it's. I I knew when I was writing what it would sound like, and I know it in my heart. But it's just so much better. It's it's incredible. And I, I heard the first rehearsal last night, and it was just fantastic. And I was, you know, my heart was going very quickly, and I just ran around the block a couple times afterwards. <laughs> it's a birth, you know, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. You know, I haven't asked you about some of your mentors, including John Adams, really one of the most famous living composers, uh, who sort of took you under his wing mm-hmm. when you were how old? Um, 16? About 16, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it was amazing for me, too, because he was my favorite composer at the oh, time. is that right? Yeah, and I hadn't met him. He just happened to be the composer who I thought was the best composer who had ever lived. And then he came up to me and said, we should hang out. And it was we should hang out? Pretty incredible, yeah. <laughs> Were you wearing your John Adams shirt at the time? Uh, no, I should get one of those. <laughs> That's a good idea. Yeah, he, um, he, he wrote a piece in an electric violin concerto called The Dharma Big Sur, um, which... Uh, in high school for me was just there wasn't anything else that could I mean it's still kind of true it, I really think it's probably the best thing ever written um, but uh, there's nothing that could compare to that it was like it was really it's a religious text for me it's so incredible and the moment I heard that piece it was like how could there be any other music and so um, John John's music has shaped my career in in many ways but certainly um, him giving me you know some sort of informal lessons for many years has been really wonderful and he has he has these incredible insights that make me sort of shudder at first and then i'll get home and think for a while what what is he talking about and then you know two months later I'll, oh and then it totally you know propels me being a, a young artist a young composer uh you know I'm guessing that a lot of people, they look at you and they see potential. Not just your talent today, but they're looking ahead, saying what might come to pass. At some point, you will have done your work and you'll no longer be a young composer, right? Yeah, I look forward to that. Do you? <laughs> is, is it is kind of weird for people to saddle you with their uh, It is to me. Expectations. Part of it, I think, is that I've been composing a long time. So most composers who are my age have not been composing as long as I have. And I did... I wrote music for nine years, maybe no, ten years before I feel like I wrote a piece that that was really myself, um, and I think that's a kind of standard learning curve for a lot of people. But I certainly, I'm not writing music, um, nor have I been for a while, that is in any way um, not what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So. You know, hopefully there is potential because every piece that I write, I, I want it to be the best thing, not just the best thing that I've created. I want it to be the best thing that there is. Um, and so I, I have to believe that there's potential. <laughs> but also, I, I hope that people aren't listening to my music saying, man, I wonder what could be. What could be next? Yeah. Yeah. Listen to what's here now. Yeah. All right, guys, don't do that to Dylan, please. <laughs> Focus on what's what he's created so far. Um, Dylan, it's been great talking to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks a lot. And you can learn more about Dylan Mattingly at his website, dylanmattingly.com. 
By the way, uh, his Sky Madrigal did have a glorious birth at the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music. I was there to witness it. And uh, no, Dylan did not suddenly vanish from the concert hall. If anything, he's more visible than ever. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. You can learn more about us at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, where you can also listen to past shows. Or you can listen on iTunes, on SoundCloud, via your favorite podcast app on your mobile device, like the Stitcher Radio On Demand app. I'm Robert Polly, and I'll be back next week. Uh, And uh, why don't we go out here with another chorus from Dylan Mattingly's composition, The Bacchae. This is from the seventh chorus.